Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast with myself, Vidushan Hantaraja as your host. And I'm joined today by Chief Football Writer, of the independent Miguel Delaney and senior football correspondent Melissa Reddy. Hello to the both of you. We're coming to you today fresh from another roller coaster week of European football. There were wins for all four English teams in the Champions League, with none more impressive than Manchester United's statement victory over RB Leipzig 5 0 at Old Trafford on Wednesday night. And that seems like the best place for us to start. Um, Migs, I'm going to ask you straight out. Best ever performance under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Uh, yes, probably, actually. Um, there were a few in his first spell, maybe. I mean, but even that, like, all of those, there was actually a bit more, I don't want to say fortune to them, but, I mean, a model was kind of said about kind of Solskjaer reacting to the other team and all that, whereas this kind of felt United were on the front foot and even when the game started to get away from them slightly, he reacted well. His subs were good, and they completely took him on and demolished Leipzig. So, yeah, actually, I, w- I would go that far. Yeah, probably you're right. I think it was their best performance. The um, I suppose the the one thing about it in particular was obviously what the, the Marcus Rashford hat trick. Um, before we talk about the great man, that diamond going forward is something United have done. A little bit, but as um, Mark Critchley, our Northern correspondent, wrote today, it's the first time that Solskjaer has employed it um, since lockdown, essentially. Um, you know, how, how did you, how, how do you rank that as a system full stop? And how appropriate do you think it can be for Manchester United going forward, I suppose, bigger than this um, result yesterday? Well, I think a big thing early this season, and it started to come in towards the end of last season as well, was uh, that there didn't seem to be much balance in United's midfield especially once the, kind of the initial burst from Bruno started to fade. And it felt like this was a significant step towards solving that, uh, as Mark wrote in his piece today. Um, and I, I think that was actually almost as significant as the scoreline and the scale of it. Uh, and like, all in all, it was a pretty drastic step forward for United the whole night. Uh, but Marcus Rashford, we of course have to talk about him. He came on as a second-half substitute, grabbed himself a hat-trick, even had the generosity to hand over a penalty to Anthony Martial for his goal. Um, Melissa, you've written a lot about Marcus Rashford, front and back page stuff. Um, I don't know. He's our new leader, surely. There shouldn't be no one else that we answer to apart from, you know, aside from him. <laughs> yeah, uh, prime minister and, and prime finisher. He was <laughs> He was so lethal yesterday just every time there was a chance that fell to him I think what a hat-trick in 15 minutes but it it had the same sort of efficiency that he's had on Twitter when he's been responding to um, you know government officials that are stating fake news fake facts and 
it's just a continuation of his brilliance. And I think the fact that he's getting so much adulation from rival fans and players just tells you how much of an impact he's making off the pitch that people are are setting aside allegiances to celebrate what he's doing on the pitch. And him and Bruno just made the difference when they came on so much of a difference. I know we'll talk about the diamond and it gave them greater balance. Paul Pogba looked more comfortable, but in essence it was just the decisive edge of those two players that really took the game away from from Leipzig. Do we see this as a competition that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is suited to? I mean, he's had probably his best results in this competition itself. Obviously, there was PSG last year, there was PSG last week, there was this result here. Um, with that in mind, is this, a, is this a tournament or a competition that Manchester United could actually do pretty well in, Mel? I think so. Um, What we've seen from Solskjaer is the ability to set up better against the bigger teams, which you obviously find in the Champions League. Even if we're not looking at Europe and, you know, ascertaining domestic sort of the, the peak performances, they have come against the likes of Manchester City, Chelsea has done really well tactically against Liverpool in in terms of frustrating them. But what we've seen in the Champions League, as Miguel mentioned, is there there has been a sense of that reactive approach, which we saw against PSG, but a a mesh between the reactive counter-attacking approach and a little more of trying to stamp their authority because they can win the ball quickly, they can transition well, they can hurt teams on the break. But we're seeing the ability to also put pressure on when they when they have the ball for for longer spells. And the thing with Leipzig is there are no mugs either, you know, with the ball, without the ball, um, in changing their shape, in also adjusting during games to situations, but United in that second half just completely, completely killed them. There was no way for Nagelsmann to react. And it it was actually quite funny that, that their crumbling or just lack of any sort of answer to United was worse than, than his clubber. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. I, I've never known a... I'm not going to say worst dressed here because that sounds quite mean and each to their own, but someone who's who goes to such an effort on, when it comes to his touchline attire, like makes you know you 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 know you know have a strong understanding about the history of the game and of tactical trends, but so is this in particular? Um, <laughs> what do you make of it? What what is he doing? <laughs> well, he was asked about it after the game. Uh, and didn't take too. And he wasn't happy, was he? No, he wasn't no. happy. Um, I suppose when you <laughs> when you dress like a pillock, you have to win. Uh, it's a great <laughs> truism of football, or a great a truth of football, should I say? <laughs> um, it is, you know. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. It's flashier <laughs> than tactics, uh, and quite odd. Maybe he wants to draw attention to himself. <laughs> um, in, in relation to the wider point, actually, just that we were touching on there about United in the Champions League. I think the thing about the Champions League is because of its prestige and its history and its gravitas and all that, and because 
I mean, it's ideal is crowning the best team in Europe, and it is occasionally won by the best team in, in Europe. I, I think people place too much stock in what is actually required to win it. Because for all our prestige, ultimately, it's still a cup competition prone to a lot of luck, much more so than a league campaign. And in an era when there's about nine super wealthy super clubs who are almost guaranteed to get to the quarterfinals or thereabouts, you don't actually need that much to win it. I mean, of course, we we all know about these kind of wider tactical trends and like best practice in Europe is kind of, you know, now sophisticated pressing and coordination and all that. But that will generally bear out over the course of a full season. In two or three knockout games, a lot can distort that. And that's why I think the Champions League is actually absolutely a, a, a competition Solskjaer can win. And whatever about Solskjaer himself and the debate about him, you only have to look at recent names who have won it. I mean, Roberto Di Matteo, 2012. The competition hasn't evolved that much since then. Um, even actually, if you want, I mean, Zidane regularly won it when Madrid were not doing that much domestically. They were, they, I think it, they're all their league, all their Champions Leagues only coincide with one league title, while Barca were having these kind of this perpetual struggle in the Champions League. And that shows how skewed this competition is. So while I would still say, despite the recent progress from Solskjaer, uh, and you have to give him huge credit for that, uh, there, I think there is still a fair... He's still got a long way to go for proving that he's anyway... That he is the right choice for Manchester United. There's still a bigger discussion there. But even allowing for all that, he absolutely still can win the Champions League. Speaking of um, new managers who still have something to prove, it was also a good result for Chelsea last night against Krasnodar. Um, kind of, I suppose you know you've just answered that question on or talked about that point on Solskjaer. Let's take you down the same path with with Lampard. Obviously, he's you know made them a bit more defensively robust, albeit over the last couple of weeks, rather than anything relating to long term plans. But does he also deserve some credit for for this kind of turnaround? Um, well, I'm not sure. Obviously, he never, he never suffered quite a six-one, so and he probably didn't get to the same crisis point as Solskjaer. He I is English, that, though. Remember, so well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what was happening with Lampard was more the kind of murmurs about, you know, if this doesn't pick up to the level that would be expected after 250 million pound the signings, and Robin Abramovich, then they'd um, push the button. Um. So he he wasn't under the same duress, but he did have issues to solve. One of them being the defense, um, and it's obviously something that's been that he's been very conscious of because in two successive games, Sevilla and then Manchester United, he went very constrained, uh, and we didn't see the usual kind of uh, proactiveness from a from a Lampard Chelsea. Um, so. I, I actually, I still think the jury's out on that one. I think uh, we need to see over a longer period of games, or when when Chelsea try and step, when Chelsea try and step out a bit more. I mean, a game against Krasnodar doesn't really tell us too much in that regard, I have to say. Um, and it's going to be the next few weeks, which will indicate a bit more. Mel, do you reckon Lampard is is getting a better idea of not just the style of football he wants to play on a regular basis, but also the team he wants to put out on a regular basis? You know, even kind of understanding that it's all about squads now, especially with the volume of games they're going to play. We, you know, we've seen him try different systems and we've seen him try different personnel, for example. He didn't seem to have really stuck on a, on a position for N'Golo Kante. Do you think, you know, over the, certainly not just last night, for the reasons that Miggs just pointed out, but 
I suppose over the last week, two weeks or so, do you think we're getting, he's getting a better idea, I suppose, of, of the personnel he wants and where? I think it is starting to settle a bit more. It's obviously quite difficult when you make such a heavy investment in the team in terms of the cost, but also the numbers that you're bringing in, um, because there will invariably be an adjustment period and how the players respond to your tactical demands. We've seen him use, you know, a few players out of position. Kai Havertz been been one of them, but I think he is getting closer to the idea. The problem is there will have to be a lot of tinkering still and rotation because the amount of games calls for it. And I mean, that's why they decided to go and make the squad so deep to try and give them a a better fighting chance on, on all fronts, pretty much, especially with the domestic cup competitions, I think. Um, just on Lampard, though, you know, he was saying we need to judge managers on on face value. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, we're trying to be fair on everyone. And we can't judge him differently because he's a, a young English manager or because, you know, of the playing career he's had and the fact that he wants the very best for for Chelsea because he's a, of his affiliation to the club. I, I don't understand why he thinks he is being looked at differently. He 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 will be whether he likes it or not compared to the clubs and the managers at the clubs that Chelsea should be competing with. So Guardiola at Manchester City, Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. That because the nature of Chelsea is that they should be competing with those clubs. The reason they spend the kind of money they do is because that's where they look at themselves. They need to return to that very top tier. And so he will be held to that standard. And when you are being gifted with the best talents around Europe, then the pressure and the expectation will rise for sure. Migs, you've you've spoken quite a bit on this topic of, I suppose, football manager privilege and specifically the ex-player privilege when it comes to management. Um, You know, just off the back of those two results, we're seeing two managers who look like they're going to actually use that privilege wisely. Um, What are your kind of thoughts over, I suppose, not just... Lampard's words, but I suppose football management at the moment, because you know, I suppose for the for the same reason that I was going to say that you know, there's um, you know, people are a bit more wary about spending too much money on transfers, but that's evidently not the case. But you know, given the current economy of the game, it's I suppose it can be quite an easy fix for for some clubs to get a high profile ex player in rather than on a, I don't know maybe an established talent. But where are you on the kind of balance at the moment? Um. I think it uh, overall, it's evidently a trend in the game now. Given Chelsea have done it, United have done it, uh, Madrid are doing it, um, and now Juventus have gone to it with something which was an extremely curious move. And we, Juventus almost feeds into it more because they had previously been such a well-run club, and it almost felt like it was just a, a wild card move that almost felt one of as if they almost got bored and complacent with how dominant they've been in, in Italy. Uh, and I think there are a lot of questions about Pirlo. And this is kind of the thing about it. I mean, I can't, personally speaking, I can't understand how these super clubs... I mean, you, you, the, the attraction of a, of a former player like that is 
I mean, obviously, there's the stuff about getting the club, which is kind of bollocks that's irrelevant after about three months because then it just ceases to be an issue. Then there's obviously the kind of the public relations or perception that put out there. Just by, it, it does offer an element of self-protection for a club that like suddenly, if you, if you have a legend there, the fan, you can see it with United and Chelsea fans. They, they're much more reluctant to get on the manager's back in that way. They, they're more willing to give, give him a chance. I mean, when it comes down to it for me, and, and, and this is the thing, it could very well be that Solskjaer ends up one of the games great or Lampard ends up one of the games great. But personally, I can't really understand how the super clubs allow themselves to be finishing schools in that way. I think for clubs like that who have the means to do it and have a certain pressure to be at the top, uh, I can't understand how they just don't go out there and get the best possible candidate for the job. And I know United fans respond, well, we tried that with Van Gaal and Mourinho. They didn't. Van, Van Gaal, they, they, he was hired on the back of a World Cup. And as, as we pretty much all know now, the international game is about a decade behind the club game. Mourinho, they signed him on the back of that disaster at Chelsea. And a lot, and when he didn't seem, it was as if he wasn't primed for United job. And it was, there were bigger questions about whether he'd been left behind uh, by the top level of the game. And I think you could argue he very much had by what happened at United. So I, I, I could say in United's case, I don't think they have gone out there and got, say, that manager who was just in hasn't quite reached his peak, but is clearly at the top end of the game. Um, and you could say that maybe that was when Liverpool appointed Klopp in that regard. You could even say it would be, they did it with Nagelsmann now, despite that 5-0 defeat. Um, or, or a Pochettino. But, and yeah, I just think for, for clubs that should be, should be run along these lines, I, I just don't get why they make such a punt. I mean, Chelsea, again, is kind of different, I suppose, because there was, they were in a unique circumstance last year with the transfer ban. Um, but as regards to the wider trend, uh, it doesn't make all that much sense to me, even if I can see some of the superficial rationale to do it. Right, we're going to take a short break here, but when we return, we'll be discussing the crisis club that is Liverpool FC. See you in a few. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast, where we're continuing to pick over the week of European football. And on Tuesday, Liverpool continue their 100% record so far with a win over FC Midtjylland. But it wasn't without its own downside, as Fabinho became the latest in the queue for the treatment table at Anfield. Mel, um, you know, you were across this match. Um, I suppose, kind of tell us what the mood is around there, obviously coming off the back of Virgil van Dijk and specifically from a player who was going to fulfill that role of of being the bigger presence back there. Um, This seems like a a huge blow on top of that. 
It is massive because obviously the loss of Virgil van Dijk was going to have such an impact. You have Joe Gomez and Joel Matip, the latter of which is, is still unavailable, who get niggling injuries so often. And then your alternative choice is Fabinho. The fact that he had done so well in the position then sort of alleviated Liverpool's concern slightly about what they were going to do at the back. And Jürgen Klopp said afterwards, you know, Liverpool can ill afford any injuries at the stage because they've got quite a few. But especially in that position, that was the last thing they needed. Um, it is a hamstring problem. So it shouldn't keep him out for too long, which, you know, rather than him hurting his ankle or, or knee, the fact that it's muscular um, is a little bit off off a rainbow, but not much because that is the last, last, last thing Liverpool needed. Um, the old... The options at the moment are all inexperienced kids. You've got Rice Williams, who's only 19. You've got Nat Phillips, who's, you know, gone out and loan and doesn't really have or hasn't really had the confidence in the coaching staff to be part of, of Liverpool's defence. The other thing that they could do is change a shape to three at the back and use Ginny Wijnaldum there, uh, which has happened before against Brighton. But again, that's not really ideal. Jordan Henderson, you could use him at centre-back because he is versatile and has played in so many different positions for Liverpool and specifically under Klopp. But again, you lose so much from a midfield that's already lost Fabinho to play centre-back and then, you know, the club have lost him to injury, to then take Henderson out of the the centre of the pitch, who's your tempo setter and stuff, is, again, not really what Klopp will want to do. Um, but they've got to find solutions. Uh, it's just that there aren't very many around at the moment. Can you see them going for someone in, in January? Um. I know that they were considering whether to bring Ragnar Klavan back as, or, or not just as, you know, a cover option and one of the fringe players, which wouldn't have been the worst shout. He was quite popular at the club. And if you needed a filler, um, it, it would have made sense. But I think now they kind of have to look longer term. And if there is a centre-back that, they they've been scouting that they think you know for the next five years or or longer um he could form the backbone of that defense or grow into forming the backbone of that defense they will do it i can't see them spending a lot of money on somebody that's going to be a third choice or such um because the problem is when you do have a fit van dyke a fit Joe Gomez and Joe Martip, you've got all of them, you know, or, or one of them who's not going to play enough, which isn't really the situa situation you want either. The, um, the front four, as it were, or rather just the attack in general, looks to be improving and seeming a lot more, more coherent. Um, Diego Jossi is someone who's come in and seems to be right at home, and I suppose not too surprising given his performances at Wolves. Um, 
would I be pushing my luck here to to ask for a Fab Four going forward, or is that just not workable with the way that Jurgen Klopp wants to do business? I think what it does is it gives them the option to go uh, to a four-two-three-one, which is exactly why they brought in Jota and Thiago, um, just to offer different shape, different problems for the opposition. And I think the thing with Jota and and what we've seen of him already is the combination play with Salah, Mane and Firmino is very good, but also his tenacity without the ball gives Liverpool an extra defensive sort of option as well. So I don't think... Klopp is naturally risk-averse, which I don't think people realize as much about him because you know he's always seen as this chaotic wild manager and front foot football and all of that stuff but he does like to play it safe often and I think because of Jota's ability without the ball uh, and his willingness to to press and win it back that he we will see that formation uh, more often than than we'd imagine Biggs, I'm going to throw to you for the next one, and that's to digest Marseille nil, Manchester City three, and specifically a Manchester City performance that kind of looked more familiar, uh, certainly with the presence of Kevin De Bruyne in there pulling the strings and just having a pretty incredible game. Um, I feel like we I've got to go past. We've spoken enough about De Bruyne and how incredible a player he is, and I think maybe it's time to go past that and say. Do City need to think about what life might be like without him full stop? Um, I think it's beyond that because what we're seeing now really is Pep's 2017-19 team is over. Okay, we'll still have some players like De Bruyne coming through, but Pep is actually at the point, say, Ferguson was in 95 or 2001-2002 or 2003-2006 where he has to transition from a core of one team to try and create the other. And that's actually a very interesting challenge because if you go through the history of English football, there are only three managers that have actually managed to do that. They are Bob Paisley, Alex Ferguson, who did it it three times or four times, and Arsene Wenger, who did it once, uh, which illustrates it's a very, very difficult challenge. And of course, it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that Guardiola has, he's never even been in a job this long. Uh, so, I mean, so there's almost, almost two elements to it. And I think that's the big, the bigger challenge. Um, I mean, obviously, De, De Bruyne can be, say, a Giggs or a Scholes figure in that team. Uh, but it's it's uh, the challenge for Pep now is beyond that. And like, you can kind of, it's almost a defence that sums up this. Obviously, like, just bar Kyle Walker and Ederson, the back line is completely different to what it was um, in in those two title-winning seasons. And it's something that he actually hasn't got to grips with yet, given it still looks so shaky. Uh, and they're they're almost kind of like a bellwether for the rest of the team in that regard. What do you make of um, of Ruben Diaz? By the way, do you think he's come in and at least shored things up to a point? So he looked solid from the little I saw of him at the West Ham Manchester City game on Saturday. Uh, I think I went to that one at the at the London Stadium. Uh, it's a little bit hard to judge him in a game like that because of the nature of it and because City are, are in control for most of it, and he wasn't like exactly put under that much pressure, but he still handled everything competently. And the little I saw with Tally from a lot of what you hear about him, which you were talking about, one of, one of the very promising global defenders in that regard. 
but then it feels like a little bit of an issue with City is, I mean, there's been a lot of focus on recruitment and the back line. And it's almost getting like a stage with Arsene Wenger and centre-halves where no matter the quality of the defender that goes into that City team at the moment, they're kind of exposed. It's become a little bit of a wasteland for centre-halves. So it'll be interesting to see how Diaz adapts to that. Well, probably a good time to move on to the weekend fixtures then in the Premier League where the marquee game of Manchester United against Arsenal will take place on Sunday. We've spoken a little bit about how Solskjaer might set up or certainly the options available to him on that front. But it's probably a good time to talk about Arsenal as well, coming off the back of that defeat to Leicester on Sunday. Uh, they're, they're in action today as we're recording on Thursday against Dundalk in the Europa League. But they seem to be a bit more cautious, certainly more so than this time last year. And perhaps for good reason, given that they're not really conceding, but they're not really winning either. Um, Mel, you're someone who's, you know, written and spoken about Arteta and the security that he's brought to Arsenal. But do you feel like he's at a stage now where he needs to show something, you know, just a little bit more? Yeah, I think what we've seen is the determination to iron out some of Arsenal's flaws. So, um, you know, how they defend, what they do when they don't have possession. And the work on that has, and the devotion to that has sort of diminished their offensive prowess, which was their greatest strength. I mean, you know, we've seen Ubumayang be their absolute goal dust and now he's he's on a streak where he hasn't been scoring. But we've always thought of Arsenal as a team that can hurt you in attack. And I, I think opponents are looking at them now and thinking, mm, they actually don't have much bite there well-organized or much better organized for sure. Um, and they can restrict and frustrate, be obstructive. Uh, but they have lost a lot of what makes them a, a problem for the opposition. And I think him finding the balance will be key now. And also the players understanding their responsibilities when they don't have possession to also being able to mesh that with just their natural freedom. Migs, what have you made of uh, of a position Arteta finds himself in now? Uh, I'm a big for this Sunday, so he couldn't cross some of that. Um, I think it's actually fair enough to be not disappointed or underwhelmed, but just it's they haven't really kicked on from the way yet from the way you would have expected from some of the flashes of last season, say the manner of the goals against Man City in the cup semi-final, the cup victory itself, and even the way they started this season when it looked like they were going to really kind of escalate. But that hasn't happened. Uh, and if you look at a lot of the um, metrics, which I will be detailing in my piece this Sunday, or tomorrow, sorry, um, they're actually very low down, which implies like an, an, a deep-lying cautiousness to the team. I think they've they've... They've had fewer shots than all but something like three or four clubs. I don't have the exact stats to hand now, but it's really poor in that regard. Uh, and I think that's a surprise for people that would have associated uh, Arteta with, um, I suppose, something closer to the Guardiola approach uh, and that classic kind of 
pressing possession, juego de posición. Uh, but I think there is a rationale for this at least. And I think it's that, A, it's the fact he doesn't completely have the personnel he wants. Um, B, I think he's more concerned than right now with getting the very basics right and ensuring stability. And that means getting that defence right. Mel, the next game I'll bring you in for is Liverpool against West Ham. Now, we've obviously spoken about the defensive issues that Liverpool would need to address purely on, from a personnel point of view. But they're up against the West Ham team that are you know, in their own way, doing pretty well. There was a victory against Leicester and they've had two pretty impressive draws against Tottenham in that last gasp effort at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and then just this weekend over Man City, if you can have a draw over anyone, that is. Um, is there a degree of I suppose, wariness that maybe Liverpool wouldn't have had coming into this fixture usually? Definitely. West Ham are a bit unpredictable i i think they have been that way for for quite a while but now there's an unpre- unpredictability with a belief that they can actually get results and put pressure on the opposition as you mentioned there um some of the games they've played even when when you think they've they're completely out of it uh, as we saw against tottenham there's just this willingness to still go for it that makes them quite dangerous. I think in the in the current climate as well, um, any game against a team that is going to have longer to prepare than you because they don't have the European schedule or you know they're they're able to actually train rather than just recover and have games is going to be quite daunting regardless of who you are as a team. You know whether you're. Uh, the seen as the big six or favorites or whatever it's it's going to be difficult in in a season that we've already come to find so far has been very weird and very surprising with results and performances and stuff that are out of place um Jürgen Klopp has spoken a lot about you know not having pretty football and I think we're going to have a long stanza now where it's just about the result. However it comes, it's about being gritty and just getting over the line um, and, and doing that without picking up any more injuries, I think is, is the key kicker as well. Tottenham Brighton is the other um, fixture on the weekend that is pretty interesting. It's been dubbed here on the running order as the most negative versus the most positive manager. Um, now, Meeks, you kind of um, tentatively, you know, put your hand up as someone who believed that this could be the year for Tottenham Hotspur and Mourinho. Um, where are you on that? Because, I mean, you, you, you've kind of showed your working with regards to the season being so unpredictable and the chance for a dark horse, quote unquote, to, to come in and um, take the whole thing. But um, there is a lot to like about Spurs. Yeah, um, I mean, that's what I, I do. The one thing I have to say, actually, there is a lot to like about Mourinho when he's in good form and things are going his way, which has happened in the last few months at Spurs, to be fair. Uh, and he, and you can kind of see at the moment, he can be a laugh when he's in good form and he's been going on that playful humor. And it's kind of been reflected in the team a little bit uh, with some of their play going forward, which has been sensational. Um, and I actually would liken it to 
Chelsea 2014-15, when he got uh, all his signings, he got Fabregas, Diego Costa, uh, Felipe Luis, and the team, they just clicked straight away. And for about three months, were absolutely sensational. Now, of course, the issue then was, they, that was enough to win the title in what was quite a lax season when there was no real challenger, which could be different this time, given it's all a bit more of a mass and Spurs aren't quite at that Chelsea level. But I suppose what happens with Mourinho is when that form kind of wears off, um, it's not the same attacking plan to fall back on. So I think that's where we'll see the real test of this Spurs, where they can they, they take a bit of a dip. But at the very, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't outright say they will win the title. They wouldn't be my favourite, something like that. But I think they've probably got as good a chance this season as any since. Well, but you, you take your pick. Go back to the go back to the nineteen sixties. The only one to really compare is Pochettino in in sixteen seventeen or fifteen sixteen. Um. So, uh, basically, it would. If you told me a year ago Mourinho will win the title at Spurs. That would have shocked me. Uh, now, on the basis of this season, it wouldn't shock me. It's actually interesting speaking to staff at some of the other um, top six clubs, and they all have mentioned Tottenham as a real threat. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> that was the case under Poch because of, I think, consistency and just their identity as a team was so clear. Now it's because of, like Mig says, the nature of, of the season, but also the form they're in and that combination play with with Kane and and Son, just driving them forward. Any sort of consistency with a manager that knows how to get results and and can plan just to win by whatever means, uh, I think is is probably why everyone's looking at them and thinking, yeah, could be a possibility. How reliant is that on, you know, Kane and Son, and I realised as I said that how stupid a question is it, how stupid a question it was, given that they already combined for thirteen league goals this season. Um, but yeah, I mean they're just those two are just phenomenal, and they seem to have reached a completely different level, both independently and together. Um, I'm trying to think of a better pairing in recent years, unless you know, unless either of you have got one. I can't, I can't really think of two players who who are that. F- that far forward and dovetailing as well as they are right now. Nobby Solano and Shearer? The one that came to my mind was Torres and Gerard, but that's a few years back. And I think different sort of talents combining there. But yeah, Kane and Son have been ridiculous. The The evolution of, of Kane in particular, who was always seen as, you know, just the traditional number nine his his passing range and his ability to drop deeper and not just decide games but sort of design it um with his ability on the ball uh, has been quite something son when you speak to sporting directors of other clubs they for a few years now they've always said you know if there's a player they could sign from another club without it being an issue from a rival club and I know you know Liverpool and United have have both said it off the record it would be Son. Yeah I mean Son is to my mind pretty incredible. Migs um, you know what do you make of him because I I was thinking about this the other day and I reckon he can improve every single team 
in every every top flight team in in Europe, he could improve aside from Bayern Munich, but he'd still help them maintain the level that they're at. One Premier League coach described to me the other day as the most decisive player in the division at the moment, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, he really is a player at his peak. Also, he's very distinctive, and also exceptionally valuable in the modern game because of his. I really don't want to use this phrase, but it is a coaching phrase. That you verticality, his uh, his ability to stretch a pitch, to, to press, to play a pace. He really does give something that is close to unique. And yeah, completely. You can, as, as Mel says, he's just so many clubs who will say, "Yeah, we'll, we'll take him." And actually, on that regard, it's all I've often thought he would he would particularly suit Liverpool's approach. Right, well, that's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. Thanks to our very own Cade and Son, Miguel and Melissa, for joining me. And thanks to you all for listening at home as well. If you are a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And leave us a rating as well so that more people can find us. Make sure you're also following Indie Sports and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on. And we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.